Tonight we come to Matthew chapter 11, and there's a couple things that we have to keep in mind as we begin the chapter. Number one, we need to keep in mind what Jesus has just done in Matthew chapter 10, and that was send out the 12 disciples, which interestingly were also called apostles for the first and only time in the Gospel of Matthew back in chapter 10. But he's going to send out the 12 disciples, and he sends them out to do ministry in the towns and the villages in the small cities of the region of Galilee. That's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is the general tone of Matthew chapters 9, 10, 11. And the general idea in these chapters is a rising opposition against Jesus. And we'll see some of that reflected in it and how Jesus will answer back to that opposition here in Matthew chapter 11. Really a wonderful chapter for us tonight. So we begin uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now first of all, notice in verse 1 that this happened when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples. Now it's interesting to see Uh, One commentator I read, an excellent Greek commentator named Bruce, he said that the phrase to preach in their cities there in verse 1, it doesn't refer to the cities of the disciples. In other words, it wasn't that Jesus sent out the disciples, you go preach in this city, you go preach in this village, and then Jesus followed behind them preaching in the same villages. No, instead, the idea is that he avoided the places where they visited. The their cities means the cities of Galilee, not the cities specifically of the disciples. So the idea is something like this. Jesus commissions the twelve to go out in these teams, to go out from city to city, village to village, and do the ministry that God has called them to do. And as he sends them out to do this, he follows behind, but not going to the exact same places, but to other places that had not yet been touched by the disciples. The idea is he wants to get a broad as impact as possible, reaching as many of these villages, as many of these towns as possible. Now, he sent the twelve out to preach, he continued in the ministry himself, and he gave the disciples room to work. And then what happens in the midst of all of this? Two disciples from John the Baptist come to Jesus. Did you notice that? And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, it is possible that John the Baptist did not ask this question for himself. In other words, it may be that John, he had been in prison for about a year at this time. And do you know what put him into prison? This is the circumstances that put John into prison. Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of the Galilee region at that time, a descendant of Herod the Great that was the ruler over Judea at the time that Jesus was born. This man, Herod Antipas, had paid a visit to his brother in Rome. During that visit, he seduced his brother's wife. He came back to Galilee again, got rid of his own wife, and then married his sister-in-law, whom he had publicly lured away from her husband. Now, very publicly and very strongly, John the Baptist rebuked Herod Antipas for this genuine immorality. Now, Herod, like many people in those days, many rulers in that day, did what they did, he put him in jail. And it was not safe to speak out against a man like Herod Antipas. So John was thrown into the dungeons of a fortress somewhere near the Dead Sea. Now it's possible that while John remained in that dungeon for that year, that he just stayed strong, full of faith, never doubting, and he decided, you know what? I want to start steering my disciples away from me because they were still committed to him even though he was in prison. I want to steer my disciples away from me and I want to point them to Jesus. I'm going to send them to Jesus to ask a question. That's a possibility. I think it's more likely that during that year in prison, John himself began to have some pretty serious doubts. 
John wondered as week after week, as month after month went by, why isn't my cousin Jesus, the Messiah, coming to deliver me? I hear about these miraculous things that Jesus does. I hear about all his power, all his greatness, all his glory. Well, why doesn't he use some of that power on behalf of me? I'm his cousin. I'm his associate in ministry. I baptized him. Why doesn't Jesus, my cousin, come and use some of that power on my behalf? Well, I believe that's the more likely scenario. That this reflects a struggle in faith for John the Baptist. Now, look at the question that he posed there. He says there in verse 3, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, please understand, John chapter 1, verses 29 through 36, and some other passages, indicate to us that before this, John clearly recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. Yet, at the present time, when he sent the disciples to ask Jesus, there was some doubt in John's heart, in his mind. Why? How do we explain this? Again, I think we explain it through the unbelievable discouragement that John no doubt faced during his year or so in prison when he was just left in prison and the Jesus that he thought should and could deliver him did not. I find it also interesting that John used the specific wording there in verse 3. If you notice, the coming one. He didn't say Messiah. It is possible that John made a mistaken distinction between the coming one and the Christ that is the Messiah. There is some indication that some of the Jews of that day believed there was a difference between the prophet who was to come prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and the Messiah. I have to say, as much as anything, what verse 3 reflects to me in the question from John the Baptist is confusion. John's long trial in prison has left him confused. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think that's a familiar thing to many of us, is it not? A long, difficult trial can make you mentally and spiritually confused. God, why haven't you delivered me? I know that you're able. I've seen you do similar things for other people before. Why aren't you delivering me? This sort of thing, these deep questions of the soul can shake us and bring us into the same sort of confused state that it seems that the, uh, John the Baptist was in. Well, what's Jesus' reply going to be to John the Baptist? Well, let's notice it here, starting at verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, the basic idea in these three verses is very plainly, tell John, I am the Messiah. John, you didn't get it wrong. John, your ministry was vindicated. You know, this was a very critical question for John. Because if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then John was a false prophet. Then John's whole ministry was called into question. So Jesus wanted to send the news back to John in prison through these two disciples who had come to visit him. John, you did a good work. You were faithful unto God. You were a good messenger, and I am the Messiah. Now, how did he assure him of this? He said, listen, notice the things that have happened. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, this tells us two things. First of all, that these miraculous works gave evidence to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, right? Jesus intended that these miraculous works would be proof of the fact that he was indeed the Messiah. That's number one. By the way, that's an interesting thing. You know, in these days, people think that miracles are a trial of faith. Oh, they say there's a miracle. How can I believe such a thing? Miracles to people today are a trial of faith. In John's day, in Jesus' day, they were a confirmation of faith. It's interesting how things are turned around in a more modern age. But secondly, 
Notice the kinds of miracles that Jesus said and spoke of here. These are humble acts of service. Now listen, I'm sure John was happy that blind people could see. I'm sure that John was happy that lame people could walk. But don't you think he kind of wanted to see Jesus come and like bust him out of prison? You know, there, there were more spectacular things in John's mind and his heart, more sort of politically oriented things, right? More things engineered to right all the wrongs of society. It, Jesus did miracles to demonstrate that he was the Messiah, but they were curious miracles. He didn't call down fire upon the Roman legions from heaven. He didn't do dramatic political and social and and economic changes in the the, the world at that time. No, he expressed the miraculous power of God in humble acts of service. And not only was that a challenge to John the Baptist, it was a challenge to almost every Jewish person of Jesus' time. You see, Jesus was inviting John to change his idea of the Messiah. You know, you might phrase John's question like this, Jesus, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing something for me? But you know, when Jesus confronts this sort of restless impatience, he tells us the same thing. I am working. Maybe not in the way you expected me to work, but I am indeed working. Have trust in the fact that I am working. That's what he told John. And I think that's what Jesus would say to us. Don't we oftentimes come to the same place? Lord, where are you? Why aren't you doing more? Why is it taking so long? Why do I see you working here, but you don't seem to be working there where I think you should work? On and on and on, we bring these questions to God. And Jesus told John, John, I am working. I really am who I said I am. You don't have to be afraid of that. But John, My work gets expressed in ways that many times people do not expect. And John had to deal with that. No wonder in verse 6 Jesus said this, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You know the Beatitudes, right? We studied the Beatitudes, it seems like a long time ago now, in in Matthew chapter 5, right? You know the Beatitudes. Blessed are those, blessed is the one, blessed are the poor, blessed is this. Well, this is another Beatitude, isn't it? Blessed is he who's not offended because of me. I I think you could split it up into two parts. First of all, blessed is he who's not offended. Many of us are just too easily offended today, aren't we? Too easy to take offense. But more specifically, we have to say that Jesus' real point was, blessed is he who's not offended because of me. Jesus knew that the focus of his ministry was offensive to the expectation of the Jewish people who were longing for a political deliverance from the Roman domination that crushed them. But there was a blessing for those who were not offended because the Messiah came uh, apart from their expectations or against their expectations would be a better way to say it. You might be able to put it this way. Blessed is the one who can be left in prison can be silenced in his testimony, can seem to be forsaken by his Lord, and yet can overcome his doubts. I believe that's the place John came to very soon after the messengers from Jesus returned. And Jesus isn't done speaking about John. Do you get the one? I would need to set the stage just a little bit before we're going to verse 7, right? Jesus has just seen John wavering in faith a little bit, Right? John seems a little confused, a little secure, insecure, I should say, in his faith. Jesus, are you really the one you say you are? Now, we might expect that Jesus would now be a little bit critical of John. John, come on! Your faith was so high when we were by the Jordan River. Come on, Mr. Preacher, you're the one who was pointing everybody to me. Now do you need somebody to point me to you? But no, 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 Jesus doesn't do that at all. Look at how Jesus speaks of John. It's wonderful here in verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitude concerning John, What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. 
For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Now there's a lot there that we have to unpack. So let's start moving through it piece by piece. First of all, Jesus says to the multitude, What did you go out to the wilderness to see? Did you expect to see a reed shaken in the wind? Did you expect to see a weak man who was blown about by every breeze that came along? No, you knew that John was a strong man. Did you go out expecting to see a man clothed in soft garments? He says, no, 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 those kind of people live in king's houses. And he says, you went out to see a prophet. And then he says, and yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Jesus reminded the crowd that John was more than a prophet. He was God's chosen messenger of the Messiah. He was not a man-pleaser. He was not a self-pleaser. He was, in fact, more than a prophet. Now, how can a prophet be more than a prophet? I'll tell you how a prophet can be more than a prophet. All the prophets of the Old Testament all said, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. John alone had the privilege of being the prophet who said, the Messiah is here. Not he's coming, he's here. And for that, he was the greatest of prophets and the greatest of men. Did you see that very remarkable statement that Jesus made about John the Baptist right there where he says in verse 11, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. That's amazing, isn't it? Of all those born of women, not one greater than John the Baptist. Now again, that puts John in very, very high company. Bring out your prophets. Bring out your prophets. Bring out Moses. Bring out Elijah. Bring out David. Bring out all these great prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus says that John has a status and a place and a privilege greater than any of them. Now, though some people might put John in a bad light because of the doubts that he had concerning who Jesus was, the doubts that came to him in his years of imprisonment or his year of imprisonment, now we see that Jesus is bearing witness to John. Didn't John bear witness to Jesus? Didn't John say, let me tell you who Jesus is? Now Jesus is saying, let me tell you who John is. Who was John? Well, he was steady. He was not shaken easily like a reed is shaken in the wind. John was sober in that he lived a disciplined life, not in love with the luxuries and the comforts of this world. John was a servant. He was a prophet of God. He didn't live to serve himself, but God. John was sent He was sent as the special messenger of the Lord. He didn't go on his own authority, but on God's authority. John was special in that he could be considered the greatest man under the old covenant. And next point, John was second. Second to even the least in the kingdom under the new covenant. Did you see that? Let me read you verse 11 again because it's almost shocking. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, verse 11, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. As I look out on you people here this evening, maybe I see some who are least in the kingdom of heaven, right? I don't think we're trying to have a contest here this evening, who's least, who's most in the kingdom of heaven. But let's just assume... Let's just assume that I'm looking out upon people. You're all tied for the position of least or last in the kingdom of heaven. Of all the people in the kingdom of heaven, you're the lowest. You are higher. You are greater than John the Baptist. How could that ever be? How could I ever be greater than a man who who was marked by that steadiness, by that sobriety, by being such a servant who was so sent from God, who was so special? How could I be greater than such a man? Well, this is why. 
Because even though John was great, are you ready for this? He was not born again under the new covenant. The new covenant had not yet been inaugurated. It hadn't yet been ratified. John lived and died before the completion of Jesus' work at the cross and the empty tomb. Therefore, you have something that John the Baptist never had. You have enjoyment of the new covenant. Let me put it this way. You could say this as a rule. I know you can find exceptions. But as a rule, wouldn't we say that the darkest day is lighter than the lightest night? Well, that's how it was. John was a shining light in the night. You may be a very dim light, but you're in the day. And so you're shining brighter. Those least in the gospel stand on a higher ground than even the greatest under the law. Now, once you notice something else Jesus said, because this is a very interesting statement. He also says in verse 12 here, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Jesus' reference to violence here refers both to the intensity of ministry, excuse me, intensity of spiritual warfare that surrounded the ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist, but it also refers to the intensity required to persevere in following God and his kingdom. In other words, when John the Baptist came and when Jesus started his ministry, things got much more intense spiritually. And anybody who wants to be a follower of Jesus has to take part in that intensity. Here's the idea. The kingdom of God will never be received passively. It's always founded on God's work on our behalf. Not what we do for God, but what he does for us. Please, let's always remember that. But God's work will always produce a response in us. And if you're going to be a part of his kingdom, that response in you is going to be a drive. It's going to be a passion. I think this is a thing that we have to lay hold of. Listen. The kingdom of God takes passion. It takes commitment. It, it takes violence, if you will. Spurgeon told a wonderful story at this very point. He said that many times, I'm going to paraphrase to you a longer quote from Spurgeon. He said, many times people complain to me and they're surprised and they come to me and they say that they've never found a blessing upon anything that they've attempted to do for God. For example, somebody would come to Spurgeon and say, I've been a Sunday school teacher for years, and I've never seen any one of my boys or girls converted. You know what Spurgeon said to that person? He would say to them, no. And the reason why you have never seen one of yours converted is that you've never been willing to be violent about it. You've never been compelled by the divine spirit to make up your mind that they would be converted and you were going to leave no stone unturned until they were. Now I'm going to quote Spurgeon. You have never been brought by the spirit to such a passion that you have said, I cannot live unless God bless me. I cannot exist unless I see some of these children saved. Then falling on your knees in agony of prayer and putting forth afterwards your trust with the same intensity towards heaven, you would never have been disappointed for the violent take it by force. You understand what I mean by this? Listen, when we put the emphasis on the work of Jesus and our salvation and that it's his work that saves us, it's all absolutely true and we believe it with all our hearts. We do not save ourselves. He saves us. Yet we receive that salvation with a passion that can be likened to violence. Think of the crowds that would come around John the Baptist. Think of the crowds that would come around Jesus, right? Can you picture that in your mind's eye? Thousands upon thousands of people. And what are they doing? They're all pressing to get closer to Jesus so that they can hear him. Perhaps they can even see his face. So what are they doing? They're smashing, they're pressing, they're putting themselves any little gap. You know, you've been in a crowd like that, haven't you? 
any little gap you can see in front of you, you press yourself in it, you're kind of a little rude and you're a little violent, you excuse me and this and that, and you're pressing forward with all of your strength, with all of your effort to do it. Jesus says that's the kind of determination it takes to enter into the kingdom of God. Now notice this. Jesus continued here, he says, verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. You see, Jesus saw that an era ended with John. All the prophets and all the law anticipated John and his ministry as a herald. There is a sense in which John spoke for every prophet before him who heralded his coming. And then Jesus says something very dramatic in verse 14. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. John can be seen as a partial fulfillment of the prophecy in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, that says that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. You won't see the fulfillment of all things until you see Elijah. Now, please understand this. Jesus makes it very clear. John was not Elijah. He was Elijah if you're willing to receive it. And this is what he meant by that is that John served in the same spirit and power, the same office, if you will, as Elijah. And because John was Elijah in the symbolic sense, Jesus added those words, if you are willing to receive it. I do want to remind you of something. Elijah did, in fact, come during the ministry of Jesus. Do you remember? That little thing we call the transfiguration. We'll come to it eventually when we get to Matthew chapter 17. In the transfiguration, Elijah actually did come to earth, did he not? Elijah and Moses conversed with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But in a further fulfillment of that Malachi 4 promise, Elijah will come again before the second coming of Jesus, likely as one of the two prophets of Revelation mentioned in Revelation chapter 11. Now, I find it fascinating that Jesus likens John the Baptist's ministry to Elijah's ministry. First of all, because it's a legitimate comparison, but why does Jesus do it right here at this point? I think he wants to remind people. There was one notable thing about Elijah. He dressed a certain way, John dressed the same way. He was familiar with the wilderness, John was familiar with the wilderness. He was a bold prophet who spoke out to powerful people, John the Baptist did the same thing. But Elijah also had fits of great depression. And did not John the Baptist as well? Or so it seems from this very chapter. Now, verse 16. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. So Jesus was thinking of John. He's thinking of how John was such a remarkable prophet to the generation. I think he's thinking of how John is in prison and how it's not right. It's not right that this ungodly generation should put a prophet like John the Baptist in prison. And so Jesus turns about, and I think the contrast between the godliness and the saintliness of John the Baptist and the corruption of his present generation is is very much in the forefront of his mind. And he says, to what shall I liken this generation? Jesus considered the nature of his current generation and how they were choosy, how they were uncertain in receiving God's message and God's messengers. And this is how he expressed it. He said, you're like a bunch of children. You're all playing a children's game. And and I start playing the flute and say, let's dance a happy tune. No, we don't want to dance a happy tune. It's too happy. Well, then I'll start playing a, a sorrowful tune, a mournful tune. Oh, no, let's not do that. It's too sad. In other words, nothing I do can ever please you. Many people who have a heart to criticize, they're going to find something to criticize. Many people wouldn't be pleased with either John or Jesus. Isn't it wonderful that John and Jesus were very different in their personalities, right? As different as a happy song is to a sad song. Very different in their personalities. But people didn't like either one of them. Or at least many people. And Jesus was just recognized there's no pleasing this generation. 
They refused to hear God's voice in either form. They wouldn't hear it when it was presented in the somber way of John the Baptist. They wouldn't hear it when it was presented in the joyful way of Jesus of Nazareth. But, but in judgment or in mercy, it didn't match what they wanted. There was no pleasing them. And so what did they say about Jesus? Look at verse 18 again. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, verse 19, came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a wine glutton and a, uh, excuse me, a gluttonous man and a wine bibber. Look at the next phrase. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus is quoting criticisms that other people made of him. Do you understand Jesus criticized he eats too much and he drinks too much. He's having too much of a good time. Now, by the way, does that match at all with your perception of who Jesus is? The way many people have an image of Jesus in their mind, the last thing in the world they could think of Jesus doing is having a good time. But this is what Jesus was accused of. Now, please don't get me wrong. I don't mean to imply that Jesus was a silly man a frivolous man, a jokester in the way that people are today. Jesus wasn't a foolish man, and we remember well the words from Isaiah. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. But nobody should think that Jesus walked around every day of his life overwhelmed with this kind of depression or melancholy. Not this at all. In fact, when people criticized him, the criticism was, Seems to be having too much fun. But notice what they say next there in verse 19. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. These words were meant to condemn Jesus, but really aren't they wonderful? Aren't those wonderful words? Aren't you happy that Jesus is the friend of tax collectors and sinners? Aren't you happy that Jesus is the friend of sinners? That he's not only the friend of some super saints who live out in some monastic outpost way out in the middle of nowhere and deny themselves every pleasure of life, and just live these lives unbelievably committed to God. But Jesus is the friend of sinners. You know what that tells me? He can be my friend. I can be a friend of Jesus. Those people said it as criticism. Jesus received it, I believe, as a badge of honor. But notice the last phrase in verse 19. It's very important. But wisdom is justified by her children. The wise man is proved to be wise by his wise actions. The actions are like the children that come forth from him, right? The wise person doesn't have to give a lecture on wisdom to prove his wisdom. Do you want to know if somebody's really wise? Look at their life and look at the outcome of their life and you're going to see. Wisdom is justified of her children. Jesus had especially in mind here the wisdom that would accept both John and Jesus for what they were and what they were called to. Look, people might criticize John, right? And listen, he was a weird guy, was he not? John was a strange man. There were things you could criticize about John. But look at what he did. John the Baptist led thousands of people into repentance, preparing the way for the Messiah. So criticize John all you want, but look at what he did. Wisdom is justified by its children. Same thing with Jesus. People might criticize Jesus, but look at what he did. He taught and worked and loved and died like no one ever has before. All right, continuing on here now, verse 20. And then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. That's kind of a heavy verse, right? Jesus moves from this idea of John the Baptist and the whole thing about him, and then he moves into this thing about, you know, the, the, the fickleness, the, the, uh, the, the, the sinfulness of the present generation, and then he moves into the judgment that's going to come upon the generation for their rejection of both Jesus and the rejection of John's message. Verse 20 again. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades." 
For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. I want you to notice something. Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most his mighty works had been done. These were the people who had the chance to see the ministry of Jesus firsthand. They saw his ministry. They saw his miracles. They saw his character. They heard his teaching. They got the full package. And what did they do? They refused to repent. Those cities who had such a great privilege of seeing the ministry of Jesus so close their refusal to repent laid a great burden of judgment upon them. You know, we think of the servants of God today. We think of people like myself and other people who preach the word and represent God to this world, or at least try to, or explain his word. And we think, what a sorry group of people we are, you know? How often we fail in truly representing Jesus as we should. How often we give a very, a very you know, weak representation of Jesus. Somebody, perhaps could be forgiven for not receiving the message from someone like me. But how could you ever be forgiven for, re- for refusing to receive the message from Jesus? How could you ever be forgiven from seeing the Son of God do what he did and say, no, I refuse it. And that's why Jesus laid forth this principle that greater light means greater responsibility. By the way, isn't that a terrifying principle for the Western world? What great light has the Western world? I'm thinking primarily of uh, North America and Europe. What tremendous light has been shined in the Western world? An amazing bright light of the gospel and the word of God has been handed to this age, to this world, to this, this culture. And it seems to be leaving it as fast as it possibly can. Now, what this generation did was it refused to respond to Jesus' message. They didn't start an anti-Jesus campaign, right? No, a few of them did. I remember back when Jesus cast the demons out of the two guys that were in the tombs, right? That little city around there, they, they asked Jesus never to come again. But that was rare, wasn't it? Very few cities uh, started an anti-Jesus campaign and said, Jesus, please don't come here. No, 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 no. Most of them who were guilty of this rejection were guilty of it in a passive way. They just ignored him. And what did Jesus say of these people who ignored him? It will be more tolerable for these other places on the Day of Judgment. Did you notice the places that he mentioned? He mentioned, first of all, Tyre and Sidon in verse 22. Those were two famous Old Testament cities, not cities in Israel, cities in Phoenicia, just north of Israel, cities that were responsible for great wickedness and cities that God judged mightily. And then he mentions the other two cities uh, right there in verse 23 about these other two cities that were very famous for being judged, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So it's going to be better for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you, Chorazin. It'll be better for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you, Bethsaida or Capernaum. It's a pretty heavy statement. You know, when Jesus said this, he communicated a very important principle to us, one that we don't often think about, that there will in fact be different degrees of judgment given to people. Some people will be punished more severely in the final judgment than other people will. There are degrees of blessing and glory in heaven, and there are degrees of agony in hell. Now please understand, I am not trying to imply for a moment that anybody has it good in hell. Nobody has it good. But some people have it worse. The way I like to picture it is sometimes people explain reward in heaven like this. When you get to heaven, everybody has a cup that will be fulfilled. Your reward in heaven will be given a bigger cup, right? Everybody will have as much glory, as much reward as they can possibly bear. But those who have served God more diligently, those who have been more honoring to him in his life, whatever you want to say, they will have a bigger cup. So everybody will be full, 
but some people who have bigger cups will have more, right? But we'll all be full in heaven. Now, transfer the same analogy to hell. Everybody will be having agony in hell, but perhaps God will give to some a greater capacity for agony. It's terrifying to think about. That's why we need to listen to what Jesus said. He said to the city of Chorazin, to the city of Bethsaida, to the city of Capernaum. By the way, God's judgment was fulfilled against these cities. Each one of them was long ago destroyed and has been desolate for generations upon generations. You can visit Capernaum today. It's a great place to go on your tour of Israel, but nobody really lives there. It's famous for being an archaeological ruin. I want you to notice something. Jesus mentioned these three cities... Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, and the great works that he did there, right? Now you go through your Bible, and you're not going to read of any great works that Jesus did in Chorazin or Bethsaida. Capernaum, yes. We'll talk about Capernaum in a minute. But in Chorazin and Bethsaida, we don't read about great things that Jesus did there. Do you understand what this tells us? It reminds us of something that we know, but we don't think about enough. This is what we know. We know that the Gospels are incomplete records. They don't tell us everything about the life of Jesus. Now, how did we know this? We knew this already because the Gospels themselves tell us this. May I read to you John chapter 21, verse 25. Let me read this to you. And there are also many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. At the end of his gospel, John said, you know what? He did a bunch more stuff that I'm not telling you about. And it just reminds us, the gospels are a true account of Jesus's life, but they are not a complete account of Jesus's life. He did much more than is included, including whatever miracles he did in Chorazin and Bethsaida. But then the third city mentioned Capernaum. It's radical to me that Jesus would speak out against Capernaum. Why? Friends, that was his adopted hometown. That's where Jesus lived. He made his home in Capernaum. We're we're, we're told this in Matthew chapter 4. And yet, even his own city rejected him. Verse 25. At that time... Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. You know, in the midst of all this talking about John the Baptist and hardened hearts and those rejecting, Jesus has to pause just for a moment and he says, really, it's wonderful there. It says that, did you see that in verse 25? He answered and said. Doesn't that suggest something very powerful to you? Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father. Now, I want you to notice this. If Jesus answered something right then and said that at that moment, it means that there was a constant communication between himself and God the Father. And we're let in on a little part of it right here. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. There's a strong note of joy in Jesus' communication with his Father. The, the, The persons of the Trinity speak and commune with each other with joy. And then he says, you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and you've revealed them to babes. Jesus was happy that God chose the unlikely ones, those whom Jesus calls babes, to respond to his message of the kingdom. Again, notice this in the larger context of the rise context, I should say, of the rising rejection of Jesus. He's being rejected by many, right? But Jesus says, "No, no, no. They still have the babes that the Father has touched in his heart." or in their hearts, and they are the ones that still receive me. Going on here now, he says verse, or excuse me, he says, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now again, this is a staggering statement that Jesus makes right here in verse 27. 
Let me say it again. No one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, Jesus is the Son, of course, and here is another staggering, self-focused statement from Jesus. He proclaimed here that only he had a true relationship with God the Father and that God the Father could only be known through him. No one knows the Father except the Son. What would you think if I stood up in front of you know you or even a thousand people and said, none of you knows God like I know him. I know him better than any of you and I always will. You'd think, the guy's crazy. The guy's an egomaniac. Friends, this is what Jesus said of himself. And then if he could even be even more bold, he said, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. You see that? Not only did Jesus say, I am the one who has a relationship with God that nobody else does, but you can only have a relationship with God if I will it, if I allow it. It's a staggering statement. It tells us something very interesting here, several things actually. It tells us, first of all, that there are no secrets between the Father and the Son. Did you notice that in verse 27? All things have been delivered to me by my Father. There's no secrets between the Father and the Son. There's one notable exception you might make. Jesus said that the day and the hour of his glorious second coming was known only to the Father and not to him. I believe that Jesus knows that now, but in the days of his earthly walk, he willingly chose to not receive that knowledge. But we can say, except for that very interesting and rare exception, there are no secrets between the Father and the Son. Secondly, there's no one who knows the Son as well as the Father does. Look at it in verse 27. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Third, There's no one who knows the Father as well as the Son does. He says, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And then finally, the Son chooses to reveal the Father to some. That's the last part of verse 27. And by the way, let me say this. There is an important difference in the way that the Son knows the Father and the way that we may know Him. We know God the Father because he stoops down low to make himself known. If he never did that, we would never know him, right? The Son of God knows God the Father in a completely different way. He knows them. They know one another because they are equal in nature and completely compatible with each other. That we cannot say of our own knowledge of God the Father. So we end the chapter and we end our study this evening with these last three glorious verses. Verse 28. Come to me. Maybe I should just stop right there. Do you sense a predestinarian bent in verse 27 at the very end? Look at what he says. And he, excuse me, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In other words, Jesus is saying, and let's not come back on Jesus' words at all. We're just going to say him just as Jesus says. Nobody can know the Father unless the Son wants him to. Your knowledge of God is in my hands. I am sovereign over this. That's a heavy statement of the sovereignty of God, of the, of the sovereignty of Jesus, right? And then his very next words are what? Come to me. A wide open invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He doesn't just say, hey, um, you elect ones out there, come to me. You ones who are predestined, you come to me. Listen, I believe there are elect. I believe there is a predestination. I believe that. But that's never how the gospel is presented as an invitation. How is the gospel always presented as an invitation? Come. Come, come. Don't worry about election. Just come. Don't worry about predestination. Just come. You come. Come unto Jesus. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.
Now, the first thing I want to examine in that statement is the authority of it. Come unto me. Jesus showed his authority when he said that. This invitation is unthinkable in the mouth of anyone else but God. And woe to anybody who calls people to themselves. What what would you think of a religious teacher who stood up today and told everybody, hey, come unto me. Let me be your leader. You'd say, get away from me. You scare me. You frighten me. But Jesus could say it because Jesus was God. Come, he says. He doesn't drive anybody away. And he calls them to himself. His favorite word is come. Come unto me. By the way, it's unto Jesus that you must come. And by a personal trust, you don't come primarily to a doctrine. You don't come primarily to some kind of sacrament. You don't come primarily to some ministry. Primarily, you must come to Jesus, to him as a personal Savior. And then what do you do? You receive it as someone who is laboring and heavy laden. Jesus directed this call to those who were burdened. He called those who sensed that they must come to him. I'm under a heavy load. Please, I must come to Jesus. Uh, One commentator, D.A. Carson, he says, that labor here in verse 28, labor implies the burdens we take upon ourselves. Heavy laden implies the burdens that other people put upon us. And we live troubled by both, do we not? Do you not live troubled by the burdens that you put upon yourself? And do you not also live troubled by the burdens that other people have put upon you? And Jesus says, come unto me. I don't care if you put the burden upon yourself, or I don't care if other people put it on it. You just come to me. And then what does he say? Come to me, verse 29, and, and, and relax in my jacuzzi whirlpool. Does he say that? No, no, it's very interesting. It's almost paradoxical. Hey, all you who labor and are heavy laden, you come to me and I'll put you to work. That's what he says, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Now, what was a yoke for? A yoke was that, you know, piece of wood construction that went around the neck of a, of a domesticated animal like an ox or a steer or something like that or a cow that would pull a plow right it was used to transfer the energy of that ox or whatever it was to the plow or whatever it was going to pull a wagon or whatever a yoke meant work there's the oxen in the field right and the farmer comes with the yoke what does the oxen say it's time to work he's got he's not putting this on me for a decoration there's work to do and doesn't this Almost trouble us. Hey, all you who labor, all you who are heavy laden, come to Jesus and he'll put a yoke upon you. But you see, in the mouth of Jesus, it's so filled with love. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. You see, what Jesus says to those who labor and are heavy laden is not, oh, I'll relieve you of all your work. It's going to be the eternal vacation. You know, the the wonderful jacuzzi whirlpool for the rest of your life. It's not that. No, the idea is this. You come to me and there will be work to do, but you'll find me in the midst of it. What Jesus doesn't offer you is, he doesn't offer a release from all work. No, he says, you get me. Let me read it to you again, verse 29. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's the glory of it. Now, it's also very interesting here. The ancient Jews, this is according to Adam Clark, the ancient Jews commonly used the idea of a yoke to express someone's obligation to God. So they spoke of the yoke of the kingdom, the yoke of the law, the yoke of the command, the yoke of repentance, the yoke of faith. And in general, they spoke of the yoke of God. In this context, it's easy to see Jesus simplifying and saying, listen, forget about all those other yokes. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You know, when someone looks at the yoke of Jesus from a distance, 
It's easy to get all kinds of wrong ideas about it. But if you would just do what Jesus said, do you see what he said? He said very simply, take my yoke upon you. Try it out, Jesus says. Go, go ahead, here it is, try it out. You'll never know until you try. You look at the yoke and you say, oh, I don't know, it looks like a lot of work to me. I don't know if it'll fit me right. Maybe it was made for somebody else. Maybe I won't like it. Jesus says, shh, 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 Jesus, try it on. Take my yoke upon you and you'll see. You'll see what kind of yoke it is. You'll see that the yoke of Jesus is easy and light compared to the yoke that other people will put upon you. You'll see that the yoke of Jesus in easy is light as long as you don't rebel against it, right? You'll see that the yoke of Jesus has nothing to do with, with the worries that are forbidden to us. Jesus forbids you to worry about certain things and that aren't your yoke. The yoke of Jesus also does not include the burdens that we choose to add to it. You know what an anvil is, right? It's that great big piece of metal that a blacksmith uses and pounds, you know, a horseshoe on or something like that. Can you imagine the oxen working in the field and there's the yoke, it's the perfect yoke for him. It's cut, it's fit just right. There's the perfect yoke upon the oxen and there is the oxen going along and it's such hard work and he's, oh, this yoke is terrible. Well, Mr. Oxen, there's a problem. I see you, you've got an anvil tied to your leg. You're pulling it through the fields. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe your yoke has nothing to do with it. Maybe you've put upon yourself another burden that has nothing to do with the yoke of Jesus in your life. And then Jesus says, it's wonderful what he reveals himself as in verse 29. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's his servant's heart. It's displayed throughout his ministry. It makes him qualified to be the one who bears our burdens. And then he says something so wonderful there at the end of verse 29. You will find rest for your souls. That is the indescribable gift of Jesus. It's powerful and profound. It's unmatchable, this rest for your soul. And by the way, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you should consider that your birthright. If you do not have rest in your soul, then you need to talk to God about it and say, God, you said I should have this. I should have it. Why do not I have it? You need to talk to God about it. You should believe that something is wrong if you don't experience rest in your souls. I'm not saying that you'll never be troubled, that you never have a season of trouble. But listen, shouldn't we agree that the general tenor of our life should be one of rest for your souls? And then finally, verse 30. For my yoke is easy, Jesus says, and my burden is light. Jesus summarized this wonderful call with this assurance. He says the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Why? I think it's because he bears it with us. Born alone, it might be unbearable. But with Jesus, it can be both easy and light. You know, when... They would train an animal in the ancient world, say, for example, an ox. When they would train that animal to plow, an ancient farmer would often yoke the new animal to an older, more experienced animal, one that was stronger and knew how to do it. The older, stronger, more experienced animal would bear the burden and would guide the young animal through the learning process and this is the same thing that Jesus does for us. Now, this isn't a call to a lazy or self-indulgent life. There's still a yoke to bear. There's still a burden to carry. But yet, with Jesus and in Jesus, they are easy and light. If your yoke is hard and your burden is heavy, Maybe we can say with some confidence that it isn't Jesus' yoke, that it isn't Jesus' burden, because Jesus said it plainly, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, in the part of the world where Jesus lived, you know what they made yokes out of? Wood. And Jesus, being a man who worked with wood, it wouldn't be a surprise if he actually made yokes. 
If Jesus knew with his own hands exactly what it was like to precisely fit a yoke to the shoulders, to the figure, to the form of a particular animal. The yoke would be tailor-made to fit the ox. And that's the same yoke that Jesus knows how to put upon us. I think what we need to do is say that um, sometimes we need to just come back to the simplicity of the Christian life. Jesus, I want to come to you. I'm laboring. I'm heavy laden. I feel weighed down by the things I put upon myself and by the things other people put upon me. Jesus, won't you please bear my burden? I'll take your yoke if you'll bear it with me. I think that's a great prayer for a disciple. Father, that is our prayer for this evening. We think of the way, Jesus, that you promised so wonderfully to meet our needs. You promised so wonderfully to give us rest. Lord, right now we come to you and we just say we need that rest, Lord. We need to find rest for our souls. I pray that that would be the experience of everybody who listens to this now. That by the work of of your Holy Spirit ministering in and through your word that you would grant rest to weary souls. We need it, God. We get worn out ministering and serving and and loving and living in this world that we have. Lord, we just need you to be our master, to be our guide, to be our savior, and to give rest to our souls. Please, Lord, do for us what no one else on this earth can do. We ask you to do it for your glory now, in Jesus' name. Amen.